Chazon, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Joining me today in Jerusalem, on the streets of Jerusalem, in front of City Hall, is Rabbi Mike Foyer from the Jewish Store. Thank you so much for joining me here on a park bench in front of City Hall, perhaps one of the contenders for Capital of the World. We just launched a podcast. I don't know if we're doing it right. I hope we're doing it right. It's all right. In the beginning, it's always messy. Yeah, okay, so... It's messy. I'm going to dive right in. You ready? Sure. It's almost Jerusalem Day, and I asked you to meet me because I've got a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. When I look around me, on one hand, what I see is a beautiful city. It's a modern city. Uh, I see security guards. I see the light rail. I see trees and birds and grass and, you know, cafes selling coffee for five shekels apiece, which is impressive in and of itself. But you know what else I see? What do you see? I see the dreams and prayers and hopes of two thousand years. It's something that is very present in my consciousness. Frankly, when I walk around Israel as a whole, but but Yushalayim perhaps more than any other place, that this is a place for which the people that we belong to has longed for a couple of thousand years. And I'm curious, first of all, do you feel it? Do you sense that in the air? Yeah, every day. The truth is that is Jerusalem. What hey. you're describing is Jerusalem. But it's a realization of 2,000 years of longings in progress. It's a realization in progress. It's not oh. necessarily like realization full stop. No doubt. But where do you see it in particular? Because when I look around, part of it is just in the architecture. Mm-hmm. right? You know, when you walk up to City Hall, the part that faces... The, the old city walls of Jerusalem. There's like a little bit of face-off going on there. Plus, of course, City Hall itself on that side is riddled with bullet holes from the failed attempts to take the old right. city in 48 and all the sniping. So I feel like I see it in the architecture. Mm-hmm. Where do you find this sort of well, sense like, of living I, past I, and I present? I think we can see it everywhere. We can see it in the architecture, certainly. We can see it in the uh, people. But the truth is, I think all of those things are really just expressions of an energy that's much more than the sum of its parts. I think there's an energy Jerusalem has that we're sensing in everything, whether it's the architecture, whether it's the uh, cafes, whether it's the uh, proximity to uh, the old city, there's an energy that shines through all of that, this energy of fire that we sense even in quiet, even on a quiet morning like this one. There's this just very, very intense energy that Jerusalem has that uh, is undeniable. No doubt. I mean, do you think there's any other city in the world that has a psychological syndrome named for it? I mean, Jerusalem syndrome is a real thing. People come here and one can say, you know, they're a selected group, meaning that there's a certain imbalanced nature that is attracted to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more than that. People come here and some are unable to keep the veil over that energy and it really overwhelms them. You get people prophesying in the streets. Well, maybe. (laughs) I mean, okay. You get people speaking in a way in which the rational world is not accustomed yes, to receive true. them. And, true. and what's coming out is a big question. I mean, that's right. a different but, but, topic but for think, another time. But I think but, that's just the unique energy of Jerusalem, but I think that many cities all over the world have this energy. In our country, I think Hebron, Hebron has a very distinct energy. I think Sfat has a very distinct energy. Yeah. Uh, but I think also Paris has a very distinct energy. New York has a very distinct energy. No question. Like San Francisco has a very distinct energy. Well, listen, I wasn't joking when I said that this is a contender for capital of the world. Right, and I think there are certain kinds of souls that are attracted to certain types of cities. I think that there are just people who are drawn, like magnetized to cities like Jerusalem. You might be one of those people. I might be one of those people. And I think Jerusalem obviously becomes somewhat of a mixed salad of those type of individuals who are just drawn, magnetized to Zion. Oh, it is a mixed salad. And it's also a real city. I mean, I agree with you that one of the challenges we have is that what's the container that can really hold all those disparate hearts that have become so attenuated, both in our exile and our tendency to go to the extreme in a way which is productive. And it might just be that Jerusalem is that. But let's talk a little history. We're in the early 1950s. 
You know, we, we, we passed through the wake of the War of Independence. We're not yet in the solid ground of the, say, uh, post-67 um, existence here where there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a retreat of the existential fear, really in the heart of the insecurity. And Jerusalem plays a very interesting role in that. I've heard you say before that you feel in many ways that the failure or, or the decision, depending on how you look at it, not to conquer the old city in 1948 on the behalf of the provisional government, right? Mind you that the, the Lechen, the Irgun, the two uh, other elements of the underground army maintained their presence in the old city and indeed tried to hold out. But the decision of the provisional government not to to either hold on to or perhaps reconquer the old city in 48 constitutes a loss, meaning that perhaps we it's lost just the War of Independence in some way. We won the War of Independence against England. Yes. We won a, a probably what we could call a 10-year urban guerrilla war against England sure. that Lechi fought, the Lochemech Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, you, with you, the Stern you, Gang. You X the Irgun out of that altogether? Not altogether, but the they were against the revolution. You have to remember for the first few years of this conflict, the Etzel, the Irgun Tzvai was not only not fighting the British, they were... Aiding the British in their World War II efforts. And aiding the British against Lechi. Yeah. Revisionist Zionism stood with the British. Mm -hmm. And Lechi was not only revolting against British rule in our country, Lechi was also revolting against what we can call Zionist ideology, including revisionist Zionist ideology. Mm -hmm. Like Zionist ideology, which views the Jewish people as an object with a problem. The solution to that problem could be a state. A nation state or what have you. Right. Whereas Lechi looked at the Jewish people as a subject with desires. That's an excellent formulation. Right. I, I mean, think you've thought about that before. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but really, they, were, they saw themselves as real active participants in the same story that Yudah Maccabee was a character in, and Rabbi Akiva, and David Melech and, uh, you know, and Yoshua bin Nun, and all of our heroes throughout history, and mm. they saw themselves as real characters in that same story. The next chapter of this yeah. ongoing story. I uh, want to make sure I got it straight, that they're not, we're not an object with a problem, but a subject with desires. A subject with desires. I'm going to quote Th you on that. that. We have a mission in history. So they, they won this 10-year urban well, war. Well, they did, and I think this is where a lot of their political sophistication, remember, most of the leaders of Lehi came from Marxist backgrounds. Right. And by the late 1940s, they were kind of back there. I think we can look at Lehi as almost like a proto Maoist type of organization, uh -huh. but they definitely used a very critical scientific analysis in order to not only defeat the British Empire, but also to drag the Jewish community of Palestine in a war behind them. Yes. So by 1944, you have to remember also, by, by 1944, Menachem Begin, he becomes the leader of the Etzel. He becomes the leader of the Irgun Tzvailumi here in Palestine, and he wasn't exactly a revisionist, even though Begin likes to like to present himself as the heir to Zev Jabotinsky and as the leader of revisionist Zionism. The truth is, Begin was something in between revisionist Zionism and Lehi. He, sure, he was in, in the camp the that pushed against Jabotinsky while he was still alive. Right, but still saw himself until his death sure. as a student and a follower of Jabotinsky, whereas. Lechi, even from the late 1930s... Made a clean break. Yeir Stern, Avraham Stern, and his followers. A lot of these people were people who had actually come from Marxist backgrounds into labor Zionism, rejected labor Zionism because it was really too soft in terms yeah, of what they saw, the, the revolutionary needs of the Jewish people as being at that time. 
they saw Zev Jabotinsky and revisionist Zionism having a much more masculine Jewish nationalism, so they did go there for a moment. But it became very clear to them very quickly that this was not really their home. This it was, was a, a shallow vision, ultimately. Exactly. It was a shallow it's vision. A- However, they did see it as a great place to recruit from. Yeah, so, oh yeah, so the, sure. the Yair Stern and his followers were able to recruit from the Etzel in the land of Israel and sure. from the Beitar movement and the revisionist movement in the diaspora. But really, when it comes to 1948 and when it comes to Jerusalem, by that time, Lechi had already dragged the Etzel behind them from the time Begin took command in 1944. And by 1944, the Etzel was also fighting the British, even for a moment, the Haganah was. By 1948, uh, it became very clear that the Jewish leaders who had collaborated with British imperialism were going to take power now that the British were leaving. Yes. And they had made a strategic decision, probably in collaboration with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, that they would not fight to liberate the old city of Jerusalem. Lechi, of course, rejected that, and Lechi was determined, and the Etzel as well, to liberate Jerusalem. But, you know, Jerusalem can't be liberated by Lechi. It can't be liberated by the Etzel. Jerusalem represents the unity of Israel throughout history. We lost Jerusalem in the Great Revolt against Rome because we weren't united, even though many of our... Sure, burned from within before the Romans ever broke the walls. Right, and even though we had so many different factions committed to fighting for our freedom and fighting to free our land from the Romans, because we weren't a unified people's army, we lost Jerusalem. You know, the Maharal is very clear about this in Netzach Israel in his book on Tisha B'Av, that we cannot hold on to Jerusalem if we are not unified. And I think that's what happened in 1948. Lehi, no matter how ahead of the camp they are, are not able to liberate Jerusalem without the rest of the nation of Israel behind them. It was only in 1967 that Sahal, a people's army, the army of the Jewish people, was able to liberate Jerusalem. So what I would take from this then is that um, the situation in 1948 is a a stage. It's a, it's a, it's a turning point. Well, I would say we lost the war against the Arabs. We lost the, well, uh, we lost lost a round of that war. Well, I'll say this. We won against the British. We we made the British leave. We forced the British to leave. According to their documents, they left Palestine because of Jewish terrorism. The Palestinians lost worse than us. Oh yeah. In terms of the Nakba, the Palestinians definitely lost much worse than we did. But the big winners of that war who defeated us were really Egypt and Transjordan. Because they increased their area yes. significantly. And, and they were armed, trained, and led by British officers. We were still fighting the British sure. in the war. No, for sure. And, and uh, we're creeping slowly in my story toward the, uh, the tripartite aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, the 1956 Suez War. So I want to leave that but, but story on deep, the horizon. But what we need to be able to appreciate is because of our tragic history, we confuse survival with victory sometimes. Oh, we survived no the War question. of 1948. No question. And, we survived. And, and, and we w- thought that was victory. We had a state when the smoke cleared, even Which, though it was less than the territory we conquered from the British. So, but I want to I use that as a jumping off point because it's true that survival as an end unto itself is, in my eyes, a, a dead end. Nevertheless, first of all, um, it does deserve a significant dose of gratitude, especially in 1948. This has right. been a major topic. No, I agree. Um, as I've been introducing my readers to some of the more difficult moral challenges that Israel faced in defending its borders, particularly from the phenomenon of infiltration, mm-hmm. which had a conversation, or not conversation, I just told the story of Kibya, if you're familiar with the sort of massive retaliatory raid that happened in, in 1953. And I put out there for people to think about, and I'm reminding folks, I asked you for your feedback, um, that though today the value of survival may not present itself as um, particularly pressing, although it might still be, in 1953, less than 10 years after Auschwitz and um, and certainly only five years after the war of 48, uh, it was a legitimate and pressing 
need. But I want to take a, a, a pull back again on the lens. So a little bit of the sense of why we didn't take 48 deserves to reflect and I want to emphasize that lack of unity because as we were speaking about before in the sort of very fragmented nature of our present society that begs the question of how we hold on to it but I also it's want to just very challenging because part of our nature part of our simple. national culture is is machloket that's oh, really yes. part of the culture of Israel is to disagree with each other. You well, know, you've heard this two Jews, three opinions. That's a real part of our identity. So let's go there right now. I was going to wait for this point later, but I wanted to point out that, you know, I am a teacher in a um, sort of a, a, a liberal and somewhat even progressive um, Jewish environment uh, in, in the Pardes Institute, wonderful place that I get to teach. And Jerusalem Day in the eyes of many of my students is not just Jerusalem Day. It's the beginning of the occupation, mm-hmm. right? Because I think one of the reasons that um, Yom Yerushalayim has been so sort of difficult to f- in finding its way, in, even in the Israeli society and certainly outside of Israel, is that the sense of euphoric victory and, and sort of divine intervention, which was a widespread sense in the, the time. At the time, and, and, and even for many people well after, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had of the impact of 67 on American Jewry um, has dissipated. And what's replaced it is a sense of almost like of a, of a disappointment and frustration around what it is to be a people um, sort of sitting with our foot on the back of another people. Rightly, wrongly, I don't want to do an analysis. What What is interesting to me in light of the sort of uh, introduction you gave about 1948 is that if we accept the premise that Jerusalem cannot be conquered other than by a united people, then what does it mean today mm-hmm. that the day of the capture or, the, you know, the six days of the recapture of, at which Jerusalem sits the heart of has become Divisive. once again a source of tremendous division in Am Yisrael. What does this tell us about the future of this day, which I personally celebrate wholeheartedly? But nevertheless, if Jerusalem is held or captured through unity, what allows us to hold it? Because you pointed out that is in our nature as a people, and I agree with you, but the difference between machloket l'shem shemaim of a, of, a, of a sacred disagreement based on the belief that the truth is larger than you or I, and right. therefore it's necessary that we disagree in order that we come closer to that large truth. And machloket l'shem shemaim, like a really divisive like argument. Who's going to be the leader? Right. Who well, who gets to own the argument? Right. That right. that Greek model where if I'm right, perforce you must be wrong. Yes. As opposed to the Jewish model, which is he is right and he is also right. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you think that says about the situation in which we sit today, that, this, that Yom Yerushalayim is seen also, it's kind of like Columbus Day used to be a happy day for the origins of white European America, and then someone woke up one day and said, well, it also happens to be the day when the native peoples of this continent began their end. Right. I think the comparison makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I, I want to just get back <laughs> to, to something you said, maybe in terms of some of the students at Pardes or, or others who look at Yom Yerushalayim as the beginning of the occupation. Uh-huh. I think that any Jew who looks at Yom Yerushalayim, the day we liberated Jerusalem in 1967, as the beginning of Israel's occupation over the Palestinians or any injustices over Palestinians have probably not spoken to Palestinians because uh, in my experience, most Palestinian grievances have much more to do with 1948 
and Israeli policies during that war and a lot of Israeli policies following that war. 1967 was maybe an opportunity to correct. I mean, I also agree that we haven't yet figured out, you know, we came back to the cradle of Jewish civilization in 1967, and we might not have been mature enough as a society to do so. I'll also point out, I I think it's really interesting how sometimes history forces things on us. You know, between 1948 and 1967, to my sorrow, embarrassment even, the Jewish people as a collective, Israeli society, was not interested in Jerusalem or Jericho or Beit El or Hebron or Shechem. They didn't feel the lack. They weren't feeling it because I think we were just so happy with survival, so happy to have a nation state, a bomb shelter after sure. all of the persecutions. We've Licking been a lot through. of wounds. Right. And we, we were insensitive. There were people, there were individuals, a lot of the veterans of Lehi, especially people like Dr. Yisrael Eldad, uh, Rav Tziuda, Cohen Cook. There were people who were pushing, who did speak about What's next? About where we need to go next? Felt the pressing vision. Most of Israeli society wasn't there until a woman named Naomi Shemer. Yeah, amazing. Climbed Mount Scopus and stood exactly where Rabbi Akiva stood with his friends when they looked down at the Temple Mount and saw foxes coming out of the Holy of Holies. And she wrote a song. She wrote a sad song that actually elevated the spiritual level of the nation of Israel. It's a phenomenal You know, thing. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. She wrote the, you know, sure. after this piece of jewelry that Rabbi Akiva bought his wife before going out to war to free Jerusalem from the Romans. And she writes a song, and it's a sad song, that really speaks to the soul of the Jewish people about the loss of Jerusalem, not having Jerusalem. And I think that song inspired the nation to care. And once we cared, history opened the door. Now, we experienced biblical-style miracles during that war. In yeah. six days, we liberated so much of our homeland, decimated Tripled the, the size around of the us. nation. And I think we also smashed the idol of Christianity, which is something maybe it, we can talk about. Talk, yeah, I think you are correct. There's a major, major uh, sort of shichrul right. that and, happened. There was a, a liberation that, from that, old that conceptions. On a, very, on a very deep subliminal level, I think Western civilization's obsession with a two-state solution here is really all about snatching the historical significance away from the Six-Day War. So pause on that because many of our listeners won't be aware that that um, up till 1948 and even for a number of years after, arguably to this very day, um, the Vatican was driving an effort to internationalize Jerusalem. Yeah. Right? There was a sense that anything but Jerusalem, we can mm-hmm. let the Jews have this, we can let them that, but right. Jerusalem belongs to the whole world, even though, of course, for... for for many years, perhaps since the Crusades, it hadn't been such an issue, right? And 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 that the the temerity of the Jewish people to return right. to what had only ever been our capital, right, so, was so, was a driving driving force within certain elements in the Christian world to attempt to prevent that. And so, therefore, in sixty seven, when history, as you said so nicely, when responded to our care, mm-hmm. um, the it, it really sort of broke the back of that religious conception and perhaps has been replaced, as you're saying, by a, by a political conception, which once again looks to divide. I think that Western civilization is really founded on the base of Christianity, even though sure. Western civilization has rejected Christianity as a religion, as a faith. Yeah, but as a I culture think, and, a, and a foundation for right. their history, you can't get away from it. Correct. And I think the Jewish people coming back to Jerusalem is deeply, deeply offensive and deeply threatening to Western civilization. But what essentially happened was in 1948, the way the West related to all of this was the Jewish people, you know 
they deserve a bomb shelter. We're going to give them the bomb shelter. You know, we're having guilt. Christian mercy. Right, just kind of like in Parshat Vayishlach when Yaakov comes into the land of Israel and he meets Esav. Rashi says there that Esav really felt sorry for Yaakov at that moment. Yaakov comes into the land limping and Esav responds with compassion. But mm-hmm. it was temporary compassion and Yaakov was aware enough to get away from Esau Not before that, right? Before <laughs> that temporary, before that temporary compassion kind of wore off. So I think Western civilization, number one, said they're not really in Eretz Israel. They're not really in the biblical Israel. They're not in Bethlehem. They're not in Beit El. They're not in Jerusalem. They're, they're on the N- beach. Netanya, let them <laughs> be in Tel Aviv. Let them be in Haifa. We give them a bomb shelter state, and that's the way Christianity and Western civilization kind of dealt with this. But then in the Six Day War the world experienced a biblical-style miracle according to the Jewish interpretation of Scripture. Oh, yeah. And that really smashed the idol of Christianity in a, in a way that can only be repaired if that war and those is, miracles is lose reversed. their historical significance. So, the, I wanna, but, but I'll say we yeah, came back. For us, when we came back to these places, we weren't mature enough. We had the desire suddenly because of Naomi Shemmer's song maybe, but we didn't have the understanding of what we're doing here. So for the last 52 years, we've been ready for a deeper conscious awareness that we haven't had. So this is exactly what I want to pick up on because there's two elements in what you said that I think uh, need to be sort of engaged. One is the sense that history responds when we begin to care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is is that we, we, we lacked the maturity or, or the consciousness to, to really receive the enormity of what happened. And, you know, you used the phrase, you said sometimes history forces things on us. I think history always... Mm-hmm forces things on peoples as a whole. And I think one of the tensions between leadership and sort of like large scale culture in history is that the art form of leadership is to read the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't, it's not just history isn't forced upon leaders. A wise leader is able to see the way in which the currents are moving and perhaps even guide their people Mm -hmm. sort of through them. So here's my thought for you is that for sure we haven't absorbed and Even after 52 years, we, we haven't absorbed the enormity Right, and I think that Palestinians are very much victims of that. Oh, very much so. And uh, in in my eyes, that plays itself out in sort of the lack of clarity of identity that we have. Palestinians are victims of a Jewish identity crisis. Yeah, and, and so therefore we're on one hand dismissive of them, on the other hand deeply threatened by them. The one thing that we can't do is look them in the eyes and say, wow, it's... It's amazing. That's how you see it. Mm-hmm. Like we need to talk about this because that's a position of of inner strength. wholeness and strength. Right. That's a position of which, strength. And the one thing that we're not really able to do is contemplate Jewish power, mm-hmm. right? The the because especially now with the rhetoric of the progressive world, which wants to reduce everything to this binary of victims and perpetrators, right? And where we as a people are living a heroic story. The difference between a hero and a villain is a hero uses power in the name of good and right. But in the eyes of the progressives, the uh, hero is just a villain with good PR, which is so often what we're being painted as. And unfortunately, sometimes falling into the behavior of. Um, so, But anyway, I want to say the, these two elements of that history responds to our care, and yet we lack the kaleem, we lack the vessels to absorb the enormity. What do we do in order to transform Yom Yerushalayim as a day. Because right now, even in Jerusalem, even in Israel, and certainly much less in Chutzlar, it's in the, in the diaspora, Tisha B'Av, mm-hmm. the day of mourning for the destruction of the first temple, temple and the second temple and so many historical events, strikes a much more um, powerful chord mm-hmm. in the hearts of most Jews than Yom Yerushalayim. What is it? How do we shift from that posture of mourning toward the posture of gratitude, even though recognizing that we're not done. 
Temple's not standing where it belongs. We as a people are far from united, um, and there's much suffering in our own lives and the lives of of uh, the Arabs around us that comes from that. But nevertheless, how do we begin to shift in response to that enormity? I, I have two answers. Great. Number one, I think you know the most important message I think we can take away, the Jewish people can take away from Yom HaAtzma'ut, Independence Day, the day the British left and we declared independence, and Yom Yerushalayim, the day we liberated Jerusalem 19 years later, is the idea that our history is unpaused. Now we are living in a world where you and I can do things in our lives that can put new Chagim on the Hebrew calendar. We can add days of Kedusha, days of holiness, to Israel's calendar through our own actions, through the things we do in our lives. And I think that's a very empowering message when we look at Yom Atzmut, when we look at Yushalayim, that people did something that actually added days, added holidays to our calendar shows us that we can also do that, number one. Number two, I think that what's really um, left for, for our society to do and what would probably clear up a lot of the confusion and solve many of our problems is engaging in this kind of post-colonial conversation. We haven't done that, you know, when we defeated the British, we kind of took down their flag and then we put our flag on their system. And Very common act, by the way, in world history. Right. I, I don't think we're the only ones, but no. we need to engage it. We need to kind of clarify our identity. We need to have a national conversation with all of the different tribes of Israel, all the different sectors of Israeli society in the broader Jewish world, and have a conversation over who we are, what we came back to life for, what this project is all about, where we hope this leads the world. We have to, we have to kind of like shift, I think, from like narrow Jewish nationalism, which is what Zionism was, to a Hebrew universalism. I think that in 1967, when we returned to Jerusalem. It was the victory of Zionism. It was the end of Zionism. And since then, we've, of course, been waiting for a new Jewish liberation ideology that we need to encourage our young people to participate in formulating rather than just kind of like train them to be like Zionists. And that's, I think, a lot of what's going on in the Jewish world today. Oh, yes. We're freaking out because some of our youth are too smart and too passionate to go for this kind of like pre-canned Zionist talking point campus stuff regurgitated nationalism right where, where they're looking <laughs> for something bigger and, and we need to provide something bigger and I think that's what I, you know 1967 we came back on the one hand we were like these are the places we've been yearning for for 2,000 years on the other hand the Americans and Europeans don't want us here but on the other hand we need these mountains to defend ourselves but on the other hand there are too many non-Jews here what are we going to do with them what about our and, ethno state and, and, we've, and we've been hung up in that back and forth ever since 50 two years later here we are there's still refugee camps uh, things have gotten actually much worse for the Palestinians in many ways sure and and I think now we need to kind of really engage in this post-colonial conversation and encourage our youth to see themselves as the thought leaders of a new Jewish liberation ideology that can pick up where Zionism left off and actually bring our people the rest of the way forward, protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess and actually trying to figure out what we're doing here and what we have to share with the world now that we're back on the stage of history. So, fantastic. I want to respond to both those points. I hear you laying out uh, a very different type of post-Zionism than the one most people are familiar with. My experience is, is that you are correct, that the the regurgitation of of sort of like 
cold nationalism. Right? Nationalism is a dish best served hot, mm-hmm. right? And, okay. and and right now it doesn't really appeal to people. And the, the sort of ability to stir the embers through fear and um, through slogans is is limited for people of Ital- intelligence and sensitivity. Well, it works better on Israelis and diaspora Jews because for Israeli all kinds of reasons because it's built, do actually experience themselves exactly. as threatened, whereas diaspora Jews don't see it. It's an antithetical to the culture they're living. Um, but but the problem is is that if we fail to offer an alternative, so then post-Zionism becomes a deconstruction of Zionism. Right. It shouldn't be a retreat from Jewish liberation, but we should advance to the next stage so, of Jewish liberation. And I really do believe that at this point in history, Jewish liberation and Palestinian liberation are intertwined. So to me, what needs to be done is we need to declare victory and move on. Meaning to keep fighting the battle of 1948 uh-huh. and 67 um, is a mistake. You declare victory and move on to the question of what lies next. Now, there's another piece that I wanted to respond to is that that um, this power of making history and of putting days of holiness, of Kedusha, sanctity into our calendar ourselves, um, it's worth noting that one of the reasons I believe that we haven't yet absorbed the enormity of the world in which we're living is because it's deeply threatening to um, normative religion. Okay. Right? Meaning a religious person functions oftentimes through the sanctity of, of routine, which has been sort of clarified and codified through ages. Um, and, and there's a deeply challenging element in religion. It's deeply challenging to change things. I think that's just part of what we're facing. Now, on one hand, that's good because it allows you to preserve much of the wisdom that has been clarified and sanctified over the ages. On the other hand, it's, uh, it can be downright stultifying. Like one of the things I find so frustrating um, is... And it's less, actually, I find, than since I came here about uh, 16, 17 years ago. Are the arguments that, that simmer around whether you should say a bracha or you should say a blessing when you say hallel, the, the, the psalms of praises on Yom Yushalayim and Yom I Ma'at do, by the way. I definitely I make do. That I belt it out. In the morning, not at night. And, and frankly, um, I haven't done it at night in years. We did it in the beginning, and then it, it kind of faded in my community. Um, okay. the, I frankly find it a little bit bizarre that I'm expected with a full heart, at least because I'm Ashkenazi, to say a bracha on Rosh Chodesh when mm-hmm. I say Hallel. But on the day that I genuinely feel God has touched the planet within our time, right. well, I'm not so sure. But a part of that is just the nature of religion. And I think that there is just some uh, some, some breaking so, so that's, that's, that's got to happen deep, along the deep, way. That's a deep, deep question because I don't think we have a religion. I think that our this portable version of our national culture that we took with us into exile was rebranded as a religion a couple hundred years ago when we wanted to be Germans and Frenchmen with full sure, rights. Sure, we've spoken about that a lot along the way in the Jewish story. Yeah, so, Nevertheless, functionally for many people, that is what that it box. is. No, I'm with we, you. We need to, I think, I, I, I'm with you. So that's I'm with part you. of this decolonization process, I mm-hmm. think, when we stop thinking of this religion called Judaism and actually kind of relate to ourselves as part of this like rich, ancient civilization that's impacted human history so much and is back on the stage of, of, of the international community to impact history again. And to start thinking about not... I think part of the problem, one of the things that's really in our way is we're still on defense, like you said. Oh, yeah. And, and I think part of it is because we're experiencing the international community trying to, like, take away part of our land. Push us back the into victory. the box. Right. Re- reverse our victories of the Six-Day War. I actually think, you know, if you take all the Jews living in the West Bank, we're a very diverse group. You know, I know you live in the West Bank. I live in the West Bank. Our communities aren't the Some same. Some of my best friends live in the West Bank. <laughs> but but I think that there's a common denominator that a lot of us share, and that's that we're, we see ourselves as this 
this proud ancient people that was unjustly displaced from our land. We somehow managed to return home after 2,000 years against all odds. Um, yet the international community is trying to displace us again through a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And the only way we figured out so far how to resist that is to populate as many mountains as possible to make it logistically hard for them exactly. to remove us. Exactly. That's bit right now now. now. now, I've been part of that. I've spent the last 18 years of my life being part of those efforts to populate these different parts of, of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. But, but one conclusion that I've reached is that in addition to those efforts, I think the, the real essential way to defend ourselves from international attempts to divide our land is to unite with Palestinian actors who are looking to resist a two-state solution as well. If Palestinians and Jews are able to speak in one voice against partitioning this land, against a two-state solution, um, then I think the international community, especially the United States, will lose all moral credibility in trying to push these top-down solutions on us. This is a powerful stance, and it's something if people want to know more about, I highly recommend that they tie into Vision Mag. Vision Magazine and, and that they be in touch with you because I know many of the people out there probably heard that and are thinking, oh, what? I've never really heard anyone who's in favor of populating yeah, what? hilltops with Jews talk about uniting with the Palestinians. Something else I would add to that is that we need to learn to speak in a language which can unite the world in new ways. Right. right? So many of the paradigms that we inherited from World War II, the, the sort of post-colonial problems, as you name them, um, are already dead in the water. They're dead men walking, but, but, but we have not yet offered a vibrant alternative. And that's, mm -hmm. it's so much of what Jerusalem offers. You know, we're in the middle of, the, of counting the Omer. Mm -hmm. Not in the middle. We're moving toward the end. This yeah. sort of like sacred period in our calendar. And uh, aside from questions of whether we're a, relig a religion or not, one of the great gifts that we've inherited from our past is the Hebrew calendar. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous tool for tying into the spiritual rhythms of the universe. And, and here we are moving from the time of liberation toward a time of full freedom and the receiving of the Torah. We're going out of Egypt at Pesach and standing at Sion, Shavuot. And it happens to be that each day, if people are unfamiliar, has a particular characteristic. Each day in those 49 days, and the day of Yom Yerushalayim falls out on Chesed Sheba Malchut. Mm -hmm. right? Malchut, of course, is that kingship. It's the capacity, as I like to say, to hold the context that allows the pieces to come to right relationship. Right? That is my understanding of the way our tradition frames Malchut. And Jerusalem is the keystone in our history for our ability to hold the context for the world that will allow the pieces to come to right relationship. And Yom Yerushalayim is the chesed sheba malchut. It's the day in which, like you said, we were ready for it. Perhaps we didn't even deserve it. But God said, you know what? It's time. Here, take this. And, and one, of the, one of the great challenges of any act of chesed, of course, is that you know, um, is people can choke on it. If you give someone their, something they're not prepared for, even with the greatest of intentions, God forbid, you can do a lot of damage. Right. We say that a curse is like a blessing we're not ready to receive. Yeah, for sure, because we believe kol Hashem, everything's from God, and therefore there are really no curses per se. There are only those which we don't have the vessels to receive. So I want to offer this to you, that this is the process holiday. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the holiday of the in-between, of how do we embrace the joy of, and gratitude for being where we are, and I just want to emphasize to the listeners who, who maybe can just hear the noise in the background and don't appreciate the fact that, that the grass is green, the sky is blue, the trees are fantastic, the birds, people of every description, religious, non-religious, Jews, Arabs, people of all persuasions, just, just living their lives here with a richness which I think, forget 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago. We would not have been able to imagine. And, and, and yeah, underlying that, we can talk about 
Like, it is like, miraculous, and yet underlying, we could talk about structural inequality. We can talk mm-hmm. about the larger problems of social injustice. We could talk about religious tensions, and we, we, and they're all real and true. But I'm and, grateful to be having those discussions within the context of renewed Hebrew sovereignty and, and, in Eretz Israel. This is it. This is why I think that Yom Yerushalayim falls out in the Chesed Shabbat because we now have the capacity. Right. The conditions exist. Yes, and, and, and that was a gift. It was grace, and we didn't really deserve it. It was true chesed. But with it comes a great responsibility to now do the work to get from here to Sinai. Here so that's that. what I think, what you're expressing, I think, is what I would call real messianism. As it, like Christianity, oh, I'm a real messianist. Don't worry about that. Christianity is not messianism. <laughs> Marxism is messianic, whereas Christianity is not. And I think we're messianic as well. Oh, you're going to trouble well. with somebody for that one out there. I'm, I'm saying me- messianism to me... To be messianic is to believe that conditions exist to create a better world. Yes. So I would say that just like we can argue, you know, Western liberalism and capitalism are better than what came before it, better than the feudalist system, etc. Israel came back to life in order to present something new to the world, in order to influence the world with something better. That is what I see as Hebrew universalism. That's what I think Yom Yerushalayim should be the beginning of, that now we think about not just our own survival and our own defense and our own nationalist aspirations, but our universalist aspirations. You know, a lot of the conflicts within Israeli society are between like the forces of Jewish nationalism and the forces of Western liberalism. Sure. And I think that ultimately we're going to be able to transcend those ostensible opposites when we unpack real Hebrew models of universalism, meaning like minority rights in the state of Israel don't have to go according to Western models. And if we try to um, impose Western models of, I'm just using minority rights as one example, but if we try to use Western models of minority rights, that will threaten the forces of Jewish nationalism, but satisfy the forces of Western liberalism. If we create a, a system and a society that's inherently unjust and favors one ethnic group over another, that will obviously upset the forces of Western liberalism, but please, the Jewish nationalists, we need to create models of real Hebrew universalism that can transcend that ostensible friction and satisfy the forces of liberalism and nationalism within us. And I think the driving force to that, I'll just repeat back what you said, is, is a real messianism. Mm. The real belief that the world can actually be a better place. Not that, that salvation lies beyond, but that salvation actually will come to fruition within. And here we are, sitting in the not yet fully rebuilt, but certainly fantastic city of Jerusalem. Right. <laughs> this is a fulfillment of prophecy, people, and I want you to be part of it wherever you are. I highly encourage you not just to tune in, but to share. Right? Because if the things that we're speaking about here strike a chord, if you agree, you disagree, it doesn't really matter. If it strikes a chord, right. respond. Right? That's what we're looking for, is we're looking for a conversation. So again, check out Vision Magazine on all the relevant platforms, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Like us, subscribe to us, help us expand our reach, help us get these ideas out. So good to be here with Rabbi Mike Foyer talking about W. Shalim. Always a pleasure.